0: My name is Glenn Kaiser, again I'm the director of the Dolby Institute, Uh, and this uh, conversation is uh, kind of a collaboration between the Dolby Institute and the New York Film Festival Artist Academy. Uh, We're really thrilled to have all of you here, Uh, and having just seen the movie Roma, uh, I'm thrilled to uh, introduce to you um, uh, my friend Skip Livesey, who is the sound supervisor and uh, mixer of Roma. Hello, uh, Skip. I'm not going I, to embarrass him by uh, doing an exhaustive uh, an exhaustive review of, of his credits, um, but he has worked for Alfonso in the past on uh, child, uh, on, a, on a Children of Men and a little movie called Gravity. Uh, he, he to Oh, Thank he to Mametambien. Sorry, and a little movie called Gravity for which he won the Academy Award for Best Sound. Uh, <laughs> and as I,
1: <laughs> I should have brought that.
0: As, um, as I mentioned before, uh, Skip is also incredibly well known uh, for being the sound uh, designer and supervisor and mixer uh, for the Coen Brothers. Uh, you guys actually started together on Blood Simple, which was their first movie and your first movie, as I recall-ish. Ish. Uh, and then you've had perfect attendance ever since, working on every Coen Brothers film.
1: Buster Scruggs is film number 18.
0: Yeah, so that's a pretty, pretty amazing, remarkable run. So um, Roma, um, the, I, the first question I have for you in terms of sound design and mix is: This is what a two-hour, twenty-minute film with no musical score. Um, there's plenty. There's a lot of music in it, but it's you know to use the fancy term diegetic. So it's music that's naturally occurring in the environment from radios or bands or street things that are happening, that sort of thing. But no musical score. So. I have a couple of questions about that. First of all, was that part of Alfonso's vision from the beginning of the movie that there wouldn't be a score, or uh, and, and how does that affect your work as the sound designer?
1: Uh, I think um, he had decided from the get-go that there would be no music uh, beyond the simple uh, coincidental music that happened, you know, in in location. Let's say, and I think that was part of his. Um, a lot of the movie as you probably know is based on his own life and it's it's a memory it's a movie about his memories of his childhood of these two years and the one thing that he had to do was get rid of and remove the pop music that was in his head at that time and and to, in that sense it's not totally accurate in the soundscape of his 1970-1971 period but um, he, he thought that would be way too much of a distraction, and of course, I think he's right. I, I wouldn't disagree with him anyway, even if I didn't think he was right. <laughs> but um, he, he thought that was an unnecessary distraction. And he thought it was much um, in, in the way that everything was uh, meant to look accurate, he wanted it to sound accurate as well, and I think that was a, a crucial uh, hand of, of filmmaker uh, decision. But, uh, that I think is, um, what it does, as everyone knows, is that frees the, the other parts, the other two main parts of the soundtrack is then freed to be uh, much more sincere and um, specific. And it makes the audience understand the situation um, in terms of another system. Because we know that uh, music in films and in opera, for instance, operates in a different level of your consciousness and your awareness, than does dialogue or sound effects, particularly uh, sound effects which are in sync with the picture, not superimposed sound uh, sound effects. So it it lets it allows the audience to um, we think, I would say we, being me and Alfonso, uh, access the film in a different, slightly different path. Than if they were being, if you are being uh, guided by uh, cinema music.
0: You've had some experience in with this in the past. I know, you know, there's almost no music in No Country for Old Men. I actually erroneously thought there was none until Carter Burwell
1: oh, corrected me in that wow. conversation.
0: There's, <laughs> it it's, it's, it's very subtle, but it is, it, it is in there, and it does do something. I mean, look, I'm, I'm certainly not espousing that people shouldn't use music, but it's, it's, it's a very specific kind of emotional tool, and. How does it change the dynamic for you as the sound designer if that is not going to be there? Are you thinking about tones? Uh, then some of the emotionality transfers onto your shoulders.
1: I would, hate, I would hesitate to take credit for that. I think it's more about the audiences um, not being directed by the filmmaker in a, in a certain direction and less about you, what, what we're doing. We'll we'll share there'll be one. a difference there we go. It's more about um, not being guided and and your freedom to to enter the um, what's going on here and beyond um, more kind of freely and and um, more uh, objectively, I would say, without being taken and pulled into it by because music, music in the cinema experience, music—we think there are certain things about it that are that you can't really divorce, and that is, uh, music works like um, smell. Uh, it goes to a different place in your brain than talking does, and when—and then on top of that, in the movies, we have basically the the music is almost always presented, not gravity, but pretty much everyone else, it's presented up here. So the music stays here, it always sounds generally the same, except for like songs. But the cinema music is presented up here, and it stays up here, no matter what's happening on the screen. Like, you know, if there's a car chase and things are going like, wow, and cutting back and forth, the music just stays here. It stays rooted there. And that's a kind of a trick that helps the audience actually get more out of what's happening on screen, we think because they're being anchored by this reminder of what's happening now, and blam, something happened, reinforce that, or get really quiet, oh, oh, something's going to happen. And I think, um, like in No Country, for instance, not having music and not helping the audience to know where we're going to go next was a gigantic um, boost to the suspense of the film. You really did not know what was going to happen next, and you were never, like, given a um, hall pass to think, oh, okay, well, th- this is going to happen now, Let's get ready, because here it comes. And, and I think not having music allows you to not access that experience, that sort of more typical cinema experience, and it allows the audience to have a s- somewhat different and and approach the music, the movie, in a, in a subtly different way. That do it?
0: No, that was great. Um, you you mentioned um, kind of being rooted to the screen and and having the, those front screen channels doing the bulk of the work. And I definitely wanted to ask you about kind of the sense of uh, you. I, I think you guys started this kind of experimentation with gravity, and and Roma takes it even further. Um, I, I have never experienced. A movie that had so much dialogue coming from all around me, not just from the from the screen channels, and certainly, you know, uh, you know, I've, I've been in the business long enough to to remember being taught never to never to take you know never put dialogue in the surrounds, uh, never take a dialogue off the screen. So obviously, that rule has been made to be broken, and you guys have pretty much shattered it, uh, and it has a really interesting effect on the audience. I'm curious. Uh, again, was that always part of Alfonso's design? Was that something that you guys played with during the mix and arrived at that? Or what was the sort of thinking behind uh, that, that sort of really powerful um, use of, of the entire acoustic space?
1: Um, I think, um, I, I, again, I wouldn't really claim the design uh, ownership of that idea. It was was something that Alfonso had created for us to work with and, we were uh, totally um, uh, commanded to work in that way. And uh, I think what he, he, of course, could tell you better, but I, I think probably what we were trying to go for was um, a uh, feeling of being a, um, an observer. It really is like an observational documentary. It really is like you don't see what's on that side of the camera. You only see what the camera is looking at you're getting a voyeuristic point of view of, of the action. Um, but, it, but in a lovely way, the, the, um, the image is, is kind of locked off. Generally, it's, there's some slow pans and there's some, some scenes where there's shot and reaction, action, reaction shots. But in general, the way they shot the movie was that, um, so you could really get rooted in the scene and allow the scene to, to evolve around you. And um, the access for that was to make the audio shift with the picture. So no matter what the camera was doing, the audio had to stay locked in the space. So if the camera was slowly panning over here, that meant that all of everything had to slowly move this way, the opposite direction. So like if there was a refrigerator in the shot on this side, And as the camera panned, the camera pans away from the fridge, and the the sound of the fridge has to go and stay rooted on the fridge. The idea was, I think, that if we have this kind of fundamental um, anchoring of the concrete sounds in the environment, that the audience could actually move beyond this proscenium and go into the frame. Uh, I think that's probably the goal of pretty much everyone in cinema, but this was a, an experiment, I would say. Can this help that um, desire and that goal? Is this a, a path to let it, allowing the audience to actually step into the frame? And of course, music being non-moving, traditional except gravity, um, the movie stays here. That, that fights that and that creates another reason why we don't want to have cinema music in the film. Internal logic. <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about, a, sure. As, as Andrei Konjolovsky used to say to my wife, who's an editor, as it always was.
0: <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about the process of working with Alfonso? When, at what point do you get involved? What are the conversations that you have? Um, you know, are there, te- are there temp mixes? Just, and how how involved is Alfonso on the mixing stage that just sort of the way you guys work together?
1: Um, It's it's kind of like an army situation where there's a general and a bunch of soldiers, basically. I mean, a lot of his movies, maybe all of his movies have like a really, really, really uh, extremely um, well-articulated point of view and a lot of what we're doing is trying to fulfill the, uh, you're just trying to, like we used to say, we're ju- I'm just trying to stay in the same room with this amazing image. I just wanna be there and supporting that as, as best as I can. And um, I think um, one thing about this film, my co-mixer, uh, Craig Hinnigan and I, and. And Sergio Garcia, the supervising sound editor, we just tried to be supportive and and um, get the things that he would allow because it, it's about his own childhood, and we we didn't really want to ask him, you know, did that really happen? What 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 were you thinking when that happened? You know, we let the um, talk shows deal with that. But the the he knew that it was there was a lot of really deeply felt stuff happening on screen. And my own childhood is, is similar to this. And I, I was um, couldn't help but being drawn into um, some really deep feelings of my own. So we had to get, break through the idea of making a film.
0: <laughs> choked up. <laughs> I can tell, yeah, right? You talk for a minute. Okay. Um. I mean, I had the same reaction when I saw the film At Telluride. I think I told you when I was outside, I just, especially during that childbirth sequence, I just started ugly crying. And I was not the only one in the audience, that's for sure. Um, I, uh, I, I wanted to ask you about um, what you had to work with uh, and the, the production tracks. I know. Um, I heard Alfonso talking about this at a Q&A at Telluride, and I know that there was a lot of improvisation. No, I don't want to say improvisation, but he, he surprised the actors a lot by withholding information mm. from them, giving it to them right before he shot. Um, and he shot the film sequentially, which I was really pretty stunned to find out. Uh, and that was, definitely part no of the, yeah, that was definitely part of the emotional kind of <clears throat> journey that, that he took the actors on, because I don't know if you guys noticed this, but almost all the actors are non-professional in the film. Um, uh, with the exception, I think, of the mother.
1: The mother and one other person. Yeah, uh, all the kids
0: were non-professionals. Um, so, uh, what, <laughs> I, I hear that and I think what kind of chaos in terms of production tracks came to you and, and, and how did you go about kind of building this, this world which is obviously very important for him that it be very realistic from an image standpoint and, and the responsibility was on you to do the same thing with the sound.
1: Yeah, we basically had, um, everyone was mic'd up and in every scene, we, we almost had, uh, I would say in every scene, we had uh, lavalier mics like this one on every actor, and, as well as boom mics and plant mics, and we spent a lot of time trying to sort and get the, those things are never in sync, so they have to be, they're very subtly out of sync and they, to, in order to use both, which is what you almost always were trying to do because the boom mics and the plant mics sound much more natural but they oftentimes are too noisy or, or really severely off mic, so it sounds too reverberant and weird. But if you can use them both together, the, the lavalier, very direct sound, and the, and the wider boom sound, you can create a nice uh, natural sound by having that. I mean, we basically had really good track for almost every line in the film. And um, I, I guess that's because they did a lot of takes. <laughs> Without, I don't know, honestly, um, how much time they spent on each scene, but I suspect it was there was 20 or 30 takes of every You were telling shot. a story about
0: the hail scene. Yeah.
1: Okay, and the hail scene, uh, which is a 360, and the kids are in the courtyard and they're collecting and singing. And it's a 360, it's um, th- three and a half minutes long. I mean, it's a very long shot. And in that, all this stuff is happening with the kids and the parents and... The mom is sitting with um, her mom and the kids eventually come in and they all come running in and now they're sitting together and uh, the ma- the grandmother gets up and <clears throat> Cleo comes in and, and sits down and that's the scene where she tells the mom that she's pregnant. So um, I'm working on this sequence and it's this one, the shot that's in the movie is like something about it and, and um, at one point... This is what happened at one point the, the older boy stands up and grabs the paper and walks off uh, to the left. and um, I said to Alfonso, I was like, what did something happen there?" Because like the reaction the kid's reaction to what was happening and the mom in particular was like I just it just sort of got my attention <laughs> and Alfonso goes. I don't know how you figured that out. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Pardon my English, my French. Um, he said, well, that shot is take 68. So after three days of trying to get this sequence going, they, um, he said, I had to change it up. So I told the boy, I said, when you get to that point in the scene, take the paper walk off the set, go over there, and we'll see what happens. Yeah. And like, I, I don't know what it is about the shot that got my attention that made me focus on that, but I said, look at the mother's reaction. It's so it's so interesting. Like, she's thinking, don't be mad at him because he's trying to, well, they they were, the mom was trying to get the children to write the dad a letter saying, we miss you, please come home. And, I don't know, it was something about that shot that just got my attention. Was, yeah. yeah, you figured it out. You put <laughs> you put your finger right on it. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry, but that's I don't know. It's it's an interesting it's an interesting thing that could happen only in a film like this. Maybe it's never happened before. They would shoot one sequence like that for several days and on Take Sixty Eight you would change it up. And I guess You know, like we were talking about, maybe directors have this deck of cards of things they can do to to like stir the pot and a certain point. Especially when things aren't working. Especially on take sixty eight. And maybe that's one of the like a a director trick that you can do to get the actors to, to shake it up a little bit. And they're not actors of course, so that makes it even more complicated, but
0: yeah.
1: What was your question?
0: That was it. You answered it. <laughs> oh, it was basically about the the production tracks and how they came in. Very and, good. I
1: mean, yeah. We really had, it, we, the movie, like like I say, a lot of the movie was was letting go and just doing what you were told, essentially, because Alfonso was so deeply focused, more than gravity, on the sound of their voices and the sounds that we were doing and making things make fit his reality of what things should sound like. and. Craig and I just a lot of times we just couldn't tell. We didn't. We did, we did our thing. And we said, "Well, that seems right," and then he would come in and go, "Too loud, too loud, too bright, too loud." And we'd just, we'd change it and we'd mush it and we'd spend. We spent several days on each reel, and the final mix was ten weeks. By the way, did anyone tell you that? Ten so, weeks. Seven days a week, twelve hours a day for ten weeks. Much more time than I've spent on any other. Final mix, but um, it was just a very, very complicated movie, and very most of the the background um, voices that you hear were um, were done as group ADR, and they had one session. There were several sessions, but one session that I was involved in was in Mexico City, and there were 350 performers, and that was a five-day recording session, and that was for background people walking by, like the scene in the the hospital, in the lobby, all that talking, everything in there basically was a group ADR recording for a certain person sitting at a certain place, stuff that Alfonso was, he said at one point, he goes, this is amazing, everything that you can hear is something that I wrote and means something to me. (laughs) So where are you going to go? Actually, you know, right? Yeah. <laughs> your playbook does not extend to anywhere near that yeah. on your average movie, even more complicated movies. Um, so the Craig and I just realized the thing to do is just like let it go, and just let him guide us and let him do what he asks, basically, right?
0: So the 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 kind of <clears throat> immersion and panning and 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 moving stuff around really wouldn't have been possible before. Dolby Atmos, and I just you know I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about using Atmos in, in the film. Was that always part of the of the conversation between you and Alfonso from the beginning? Was that that was part of what you you guys knew that you were going to do?
1: I would say uh, Gravity being a stepping off point. Which, so when we first made Gravity, um, the first mix was a seven one mix, and we were setting it up so we could then do an Atmos mix uh, about six months later. When the tools were available at that point, there wasn't a panner. There was there was only these a uh, physical uh, device, which was really hard to use. So uh, by the summer of two thousand and thirteen, we had a plugin to use in our mixing environment in Pro Tools, so we could do easily do the the Atmos uh, remix. And I mean, I I think if you ask him, he would say that that was a stepping off point, and that. He, what we learned on Gravity, we then applied to this more uh, kind of, I hate to use the word precise, but more intricate version of a, a film track, soundtrack. Yeah. And by the way, we were all loving um, Atmos and the uh, vision situation, no doubt about
0: it. Yeah, it's pretty stunning. I mean, one of the things that I really responded to is is I think a lot of people... You know, when they think about Dolby Atmos, they think about gravity or crazies, you know, science fiction movies or animated films. But um, to me, just the way you were able to use the technology to evoke Mexico City and make it so specific and really put the audience right in there was, was really powerful. Do you want to comment on that or just take the compliment?
1: Thank you. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I've been to Mexico City, but I don't know it anywhere near, near that well. We were completely relying on... Alfonso and uh, Sergio to deliver the goods there. We and again we sort of did what we were told. Craig, Craig I don't know if Craig's been to Mexico City or not, but uh, he's from Canada, for Christ's sake.
0: Right. I don't know. <laughs> so, did anybody make a recording trip to go down there, or how did you guys gather your sound effects, or how, what, tell us a little bit about that process?
1: Well, Sergio lives in Mexico City, and he's a supervising sound editor, and he gathered all that material and recorded tons of stuff. We had a lot of great recordings. As well as uh, recordings from Wild Trek from the, uh, during the production, Jose, I think Jose had a crew working with him. He could send off to do recordings, and um, we, we didn't have that many vehicles to worry about. But we actually did the vehicles later. Uh, my buddies at Morning Brothers in LA did uh, gave us recordings for the vehicles. But um, you know, it's strangely, mostly about talking. The movie, the sound of the movie, is mostly talking and airplanes flying overhead so that where they where alfonso and chivo grew up was in the flight path and so he said the planes even then in 70 71 landed every two or three minutes so it was just like a constant flow and we tried to stick with it for a while and it was just it was such an unimportant detail but whenever we had the time to throw one in we could we could superimpose it
0: Um, Let's open up and take some questions from the audience. Uh, You guys are filmmakers. I'm sure you have some fantastic questions for Skip. Uh, I'm going to cover my eyes so I can see. Can't see that way. Any hands? Yes, right here.
1: Um, I was wondering when you're creating this sort of sonic space of the film, to what extent were you trying to remain faithful to the actual depth and distance between the camera and what we're hearing uh, versus playing with that distance, manipulating it to, you know, our emotional experience. Um, I think you probably know that this is a, a problem with all movies um, when you have a close-up it's much drier when you have a wide shot it's more reverberant particularly in a reverberant space like a room you know or a hallway or something and that's something that's always exists in every film and generally unless you're trying to use that like you could say the close-ups in the close-ups you can you can hear them and then in the wide shot maybe you can't hear them because it's too far away but beyond that idea you're almost always trying to make everything sound kind of from the same place this weird kind of um, movable uh, point of view audio wise and so you might have you might add some reverb to the close-up sounds to make it sound like it's more there but almost always you're kind of following the 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 cinema of it, you know, the wide shots, you need to hear what they're saying, but they, they want to sound a little wider. The close-ups, you want it to be intimate, but you still want it to feel like it's in the same space. So in this film, um, everything is being tested that way. Because almost everything, we had some room mics and we had some lavs, and the room mics are very wide and echoey and ambient sounding, and the lavs are very dry and very close-up and bassy, sounding like from your chest, you know. So you're you're constantly playing that game. And it's helped because we don't have wides and close-ups. We, don't, we have one shot. So you set up a sound kind of tableau for each shot and then just try to stick to it. And then you're just varying the textures based on if you want it to be more intimate, there's less reverb. If you want it to be roomy, like some event is happening that can be more reverberant but um, it's a little bit like um, putting the right amount of uh, paste in the the paint (laughs) to make it you know textural or smooth or sand coated etc it's it's really it's a pretty simple tool it's it's not easy to do all the time and of course the recordings have a mixture of reverberate reverberation or not some stuff sounds really wide and inappropriately wide but um, this is just like a mechanical issue beyond a certain point now philosophically and from the filmmakers point of view you know you can spend a lot of time dicing that up and and you can superimpose these distances by changing the amount of intimacy there their sounds in the recording but um, this movie was much more of a like I say it really to me always felt like an observational documentary and we're just trying to heighten the reality and still make the words um, land with the audience.
0: How much uh, principal, uh, ADR with the principals was there?
1: Hmm. I would say throughout the whole film there might be, let's say, 20% uh, ADR for the principal characters and uh, an, unbelie- an astronomical amount of group um, recordings. Um, like the, the delivery scene, which is so amazing, that had, um, there were four groups that were on camera, and we had recordings for the doctor, the patient, and the technician for each one of those groups, and some of them were done individually and discreetly, and some of them were done as a group, but we still had recordings for each group that you see on screen and then we have our foreground people and the foreground people was a combination of production sound and some ADR as well and um, we so we had to maintain uh, a, a credible relation a credible amount of talking and off camera sounds from them without interfering with with what was happening up camera and that that's i don't know how long we spent on those scene uh, those two scenes in the delivery room was just very demanding. I
0: presume. Uh, other questions from the audience? Right here. Um,
1: the beach sequence with the near drowning was really arresting. Can you talk about the thought process behind the sound design of that, and then the elements that went into it? The, that sequence was is mostly ADR. There is a fair amount of production sound, but um, it's generally ADR. And we had to, we just wanted to get the, uh, to, well, we wanted the actors to feel like they were in that location. so. Loud enough to know what was going on and get what was happening, but not so loud as we weren't telling a story there. Basically, it's much more visually and sound-wise. Alfonso, I think Alfonso had that's part of his memory relationship was the really loud sound of the surf and the the um, power of the surf. Uh, He wanted it to be uh, a little more than what you were literally seeing, and wanted to really make the audience feel the, the threat. And you know it doesn't take much to get into big trouble in the ocean. So unless you're a really great swimmer, but um, I think that was the idea was that um, the sound would push the audience into a more threatening environment. Well, she's
0: asking you for what's the secret sauce the of that secret? sequence?
1: <laughs> well, you would have to really speak to Craig and uh, Sergio. I, most of what's in there is surf and surf sounds, and some from. Mexico and some from Los Angeles and some from libraries and recordings that Craig and Sergio had made over the years and um, there's some mechanical stuff like um, when the when the waves, that eventually when we get into the ocean there's a lot of sub information to really amp up the, uh, the kind of um, the sensation of being hopelessly being pulled out to sea and you know the idea that what what the what we have on the beach is the tiniest tiniest portion of what's on the other side of the going out that way <laughs> so um I guess you could probably have unlimited power if you if you really tried to show what was what was just lapping on the beach is just the tiniest fingertip of this huge thing so I think that was the general idea I, it kind of went down and it took several days to nail that down but it sort of went down in a kind of Craig knows what to do. He's worked on many big films. um, And he's a talented, very talented um, sound effects mixer as well. So we had the same basic path in every scene. You know what to do. Okay, do that. And then we would present it, and then Alfonso would work through it with us. And that seems no uh, exception. We worked in the same way. And it's really just layers and layers and layers. The, The idea was to try to make sounds for everything that you saw. So when you would see, in, even on the far side, you'd see a little, something, little wave curl over maybe 50 yards away. We still tried to make sounds for everything, every little swirl that you could see. And you know, some of that is done um, with digital effects. Um, the, the, they were in the water, but they weren't in quite as much danger as you might imagine. And even though they weren't actors and represented by a SAG, they, <laughs> they, um, it was amped up a bit. In CG, although it's, I mean, it's pretty much. It wasn't. It's not like totally different compared to what the raw dailies look like. Does that do it?
0: Um, I did want to ask you about how involved Alfonso is at the mix, because um, I, I, I know we've certainly. I mean, you know, there, there's extremes. You know, at, you know, I've, I've certainly in the past worked with somebody like Clint Eastwood who you know, we'll let the team go for several days and then show up to play back a few reels at a time and give some notes and then disappear mm-hmm. for a week and then come back. But then I've also worked with, and I know you've worked with Darren Aronofsky, and when I worked with Darren, we couldn't premix fully without him being on the stage. <laughs> so where does Alfonso kind of fit in that in that continuum?
1: He's definitely on the far right of uh, aggravatingly always there. <laughs> no <laughs> doubt about it. I could say far left, depending on your point of view, but he's... Um, he is, thank God, the world's greatest authority on what's happening in his movie, and there's no easier way to get at the issues than to have him come in, and he, he of course puts his finger on the biggest problems right away. Uh, I'm always a big believer in it, addressing the biggest problems at the beginning, so, because then it just gets so much easier and it's more fun. The um, We work in a very virtual way, so everything is playing, nothing is married or attached, and everything can be removed or changed. And um, that is a big benefit, and nothing is ever recorded until the very end, really. The the final product is recorded, and that's it. And um, we have um, this Pro Tools system that we work in is is so flexible that we can, uh, with enough time and energy, you can change, you know, Every sound ad nauseum, which we did, we tried to do basically in this mix. <laughs> and um, he he has um he has very good taste and he's very knowledgeable about sound and how it works in films. Uh, but he's also um, well he, artistically. He's he has worked as an editor. He worked as an editor on this film, and he knows what the editorial process is as well as anyone I've ever known. And he he does he does like to participate. He really enjoys the sound process in the way that the Cohen brothers enjoy it and uh, Darren Aronofsky enjoys it. He is not like Clint Eastwood, where um, <laughs> I know from my friends who work with Clint Eastwood, and he apparently, as if you hit stop, he, he will say to go back and change something. He he has been known to say, "Who told you to stop?" And so then if anyone says, well, we need to go back and raise the music, I can't hear that word, whatever it is, he has been known to say, let's not overthink this, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Alfonso is, is on the total opposite end. So Clint would be on one side and Alfonso would be completely in the other room uh, compared to that notion of how to do the sound.
0: I think we've got time for maybe one more question. Films that are these more kind of, although this is an epic, uh, intimate dramas that live in that kind of like intimate drama space as opposed to giant action film, who were some of your influences, inspirations
1: um, that you looked to?
0: Uh, so the question was about your influence and inspiration, especially when thinking about um, sort of more emotional uh, dramas as opposed to maybe bigger action films. I'm going to steal the microphone and point out that you are now the inspiration for many people coming up who look to your work with the Cohen brothers uh, you know, as inspiration for, for their work. But let's hear your answer to the question.
1: I don't um, know quite how to answer. I think I've always looked at the job as a job. Like, um, and I've always thought, I, I mean, at one point I was going to go to school and study to be an architect, and I, I think that um, a film is like a house, and I think that the craftsmanship involved is, is similar um, in the number of people involved and the number of details and how they can be an e- expressed, and I've always thought of the, the job as as a way of, um helping the architect realize his dream, basically. And uh, being in New York, you, you don't really get to work on very many, like, Star Wars-type movies. It's just not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to worry about getting distracted by shiny objects, there just, there aren't that many. And I've worked on a few, like, Men in Black, for instance, was done here in New York. But um, there, there are not, aren't very many distractions. I mean, almost everything is, is about uh, the story the performance, um, the filmmaking, and the style of the filmmakers. And it, it is challenging sometimes to, to see what you're doing. I, I worked on a project recently. Um, I think I can tell you this <laughs> without fear of reprisal. Uh, it's mid-90s, uh, the Jonah Hill film. Mm. And um, I hired my friend Aaron Glasscock, who grew up in the 90s in California and was a skater, and he, he I thought he couldn't have made a more perfect assignment for it, my friend Aaron, and we went about the movie and did it in the way that we thought was normal and necessary, and we played back a couple of reels for Jonah, and he was horrified. <laughs> we had completely gotten it wrong, and Aaron and I were like flabbergasted. We didn't even do that much. It wasn't, you know... It wasn't like Men in Black. I mean, it was—it was a drama, and so we had supplied sound effects and backgrounds and foley and stuff, and we'd mixed the movie like movies we thought were supposed to sound. And they said no. And Scott Rudin, the producer, said, "My God, what have you done?" <laughs> and you've done many movies with Scott. And I've worked with Scott a lot, and I'm like I. Um, I don't know. So I said, "Okay, let's let's go back to the beginning. Do you do you just want do you just want it to sound like the avid tracks? You mean your cutting tracks?" Well, yeah. So okay, so we took everything away, and we just took the tracks that they gave us. You all know what avid tracks are. They're the tracks that you're cutting as you're going. So you, as you're editing the picture, you have the sync sound that goes with it, and nothing more added except for music, and this is a music film to a degree. So we made a mix of that without changing very much. And they they came back the next day or a day later and they said, yeah, okay, yeah, that's it, that's it. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome, great. I've been working in this business for 40 years. I mean, I've never been asked to do it quite quite like that. And the the one thing that was, Comforting about that is that we were just doing what we thought was right, and weren't um, terribly invested in our ideas or our concepts, and it was easy to just go, okay, sorry, didn't know, and so I think that's the short. It's a very long way of saying being doing doing what you're told, and of course you learn as you go, and you learn from the movies that you work on. Like with the Coens, for instance, or with Scorsese, we have a kind of, uh, over the years, we have developed a sort of a shorthand. And we refer to the other films like in that, do it like the way we did in Lebowski, etc. But much beyond that, you're really just trying to uh, take, like they say, take away the things that don't sound like a movie and make the things that sound like a movie louder, basically. <laughs> I'm not trying to be cute. I mean I'm really serious like I feel like you know of course your taste and your judgment is what makes that work. But I think it's the simple lesson that I've learned over the years.
0: Okay, I saw you, sir, right here in the middle had a question, if we can do it quickly and then get out. Yeah.
1: Um, Like, couldn't that have been avoided if you had had a conversation earlier in the process with Jonah? And that, my original question was, how come sound designers aren't involved in the pre-production like
0: a DP is? I'm glad you asked that, especially with this group of filmmakers, which is, how how do you navigate discord and artistic disagreement between the two of you and, and how best to communicate with each other at the beginning of the process, so hopefully that's minimized.
1: Well, of course we had an extensive um, spotting session with Jonah and the editor, and he was super enthusiastic about the sound design that we were going to do for the movie. (laughs) I took copious notes. It took the better part of a day. We went through the whole film, as I do on every film, except with... Well, even with Joel Eason, we spent a fair amount of time talking about what stuff is not clear, not obvious, so... I did a movie, um, the um, Miles Davis movie that was directed by Don Cheadle and starring Don Cheadle, called Miles Ahead. And we had a similar breakdown with his editor. We went through the whole movie, scene by scene. We talked about sound design this and sound design that. I keep Sound design is, is, the, is like the bane of this particular question. So we made some sounds at the beginning of Miles Ahead, which is a pretty abstract film. Uh, in some ways, he, we talked about sound design, and, and there's a there's kind of a montage sequence at the beginning of the film where we have music, and there's a chase scene, and how does this relate? And I did a lot of homework on the film, and I knew basically the real story for pretty much everything that was in the film. And um, Miles is at home in his townhouse, listening to these tapes, and the tapes. Um, the one particular tape that they were that the movie is essentially about was a recording that Larry Coryell's wife organized and Larry played on with Miles and Miles' uh, nephew Vincent and um, um, a couple of other players I can't recall at the moment. But they, um, nothing good came out of that recording. And Miles is listening in the movie; he's supposed to be listening to that tape. And what you're seeing, the montage you're seeing, is about what's happening with that tape. And so we kept, there's a lot of changing and stuff happening, and it's kind of supposed to be kind of um, abstract. And Don and the editor encouraged us to do a lot of radical sounds there. And so we made a lot of radical sounds using tape recorders and a bunch of kind of, of the period sort of types of sound manipulation. And um, one day I said, "Okay, can I show you guys the sequence? I want to make sure that we're doing the right thing here. So Don and the editor came and sat in my little sound design room, and I played back the sequence. And um, they were very quiet. (laughs) They were sitting behind me, and I went, oh, boy, this is one of those times. So I turned and I looked at Don, and Don was like this. I said, that we got a problem there, Don. He said, <laughs> yeah, wh- what is all this stuff? I mean, it's all lovely and interesting, and I think I know how you, where, you, where you're coming from, but, like, what, what are we doing? And I said, well, Don, um, to me, sound design means X, and to you, clearly, sound design means something else. So all those layers, when the many times that he had said sound design, how the editor had said sound design, they were talking about footsteps. An effect. Or a door close, or like a room tone. To to them, sound design means one thing. (laughs) And really, in my world, sound design means something pretty radically different than that. I mean, for my definition, sound design is stuff that you can't record. Stuff that you have to make stuff that you have to create you got to take some recording sound something from somewhere and paste it together and make something that can a filmmaker can grab onto and approve and want to put in the movie i mean it's some really serious goopus <laughs> <laughs> and that's what happened on the miles movie and that's what happened on the john hill movie I mean, a john hill movie was much more straightforward we had put in sound effects and normal sounds, and we used the sounds that they gave us, but we changed the mix. And for, for Jonah, being a young filmmaker, uh, the mix was really the sound design to him. And the, the times that he said sound is the design to me, he was talking about the music. He was talking about the volume of the music in the film. And the music that's in the film is all songs. There's a little bit of score by Trent and Atticus, but most of the music is songs. Not playing from, not diegetic. I mean, songs that are layered. They're playing a score. Yeah. And that was really, that that was about as out there as I've, about as nakedly not doing my job as I've ever experienced. (laughs) I mean, we were really wrong. And luckily it was easy to fix. And, and then uh, through, over, we did that version, the totally uh, avid track, the, they like no sound design by any of my people version. <laughs> and then we played that back and they were like, okay, I get it. So wait, can we change this? And we proceeded to put some things back and we changed, we made the mix, which exists now. And it's, there's some radical things in that, which we, which we all agreed made the movie better, but uh, most of that's. Most of the sound effects that we, the skateboard sounds and the atmospheres and stuff, were taken out. And it's, it's a pretty much production track and music-driven uh, film. And that's what worked for them. That's one of the funly challenging parts of my job is you just don't know what's coming up, like this movie, for instance. I never, you know, even after Gravity, I wouldn't know where we're going to go next. And here we ended up in a totally orbiting another, totally different planet.
0: Yeah. I, I have to admit, it is oddly reassuring to me that you can still have these experiences where there's such a disconnect, even at this point in your <laughs> illustrious career. Um, I, I will say that, you know, in my own experience of listening to Skip's tracks, one of the things that has always stood out for me about your work <clears throat> is, uh, you know, it was in listening to your tracks that I really kind of. And started to understand that that sound design wasn't just about having a lot of sound in the film. That I think the thing that really uh, is remarkably consistent about your work is that is that the sounds are very specific and I would say perfectly placed. I can still, you know, I can still hear the sound of that air gun from No Country for Old Men in my head uh, without even really any effort to conjure it up. So I think that's, part of, that's one of the things that you do incredibly well. Uh, and I'm, I'm just uh, I'm thrilled that you were able to come and spend some time with us uh, here today and talk about Roma and about the, the, the sound work in this amazing film. Thanks everybody for coming out for the program. <laughs>